This week, I was privileged to receive the visit of one of my lifetime mentors. I don't know if you've met Terry. This is a picture of Terry. This is me and Terry this week at a restaurant. And I like to say this about Terry. We would not be here, okay? Crossbridge would not exist if it weren't for Terry. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be where I am today in life if it weren't for Terry. Let me tell you something interesting about Terry. Terry started, he built this church here that we're sitting in some 50 years ago, okay? Harry, you're here, brother. (laughs) Thanks for visiting us from Central Florida. Harry's an an old-time member. 42, there you go, 42 years ago he was here. So Terry built this church. Uh, Terry uh, recruited me to move from Brazil to Miami in 2007. We moved in, we got here in 2008. And Terry mentored and coached me throughout the process of replanting this church. As Crossbridge began to grow, as we began to multiply, he was also my mentor and my coach. Many times I had to call Terry to, hey, can you handle my elders for me? It's like, I got this, I got this. I, uh, you know, the older voice of wisdom and experience going into meetings, always had my back. And I was telling him today, he's 84 years old, still running hard, okay, still running hard the race. And I said, Terry, I, I want to be like you. I don't want to quit in any part of this race. I'm going to be running to the end. And so I'm appreciative for his life. Uh, we, we must recognize, guys, like all of us here today, that if you've gotten to any place in life that you did not arrive alone, there have been people in your life that God has placed in your life that has made investments and deposits in you that allowed you to become who you are today. And you need to be appreciative of that. Some of you actually today, here's a homework. You need to call some of your coaches and some of your mentors and say, hey, I just want to call you today out of the blue just to tell you how much I love you and how much I appreciate you. See, we don't do that enough, and we should. We should. And, and maybe you should remind them why you appreciate that. Hey, when nobody believed in me like some 20 years ago, you did, you did, and you invested in me, and, and I'm grateful and thankful for your life. So some of you have some homework to do when you leave church today. But that's the idea. See, if we're going to compare the Christian life to a race, this is what the series is about, there's no way, there's no way that we can expect to stay on the race and actually even to uh, win the race or to arrive at the finish line without good mentors and coaches in our lives. In fact, if you take every successful athlete, for the most part, okay, every outstanding uh, athlete that outperform others, there's usually an amazing coach behind them. Always an amazing coach behind athletes. Uh, have you watched the movie King Richard? Think about Venus and Serena Williams, okay? This is not a spoiler, but it's the story of the movie. They would not be where they are today if it weren't for their father, who was both a coach and a mentor, who believed and made deposits and sacrifices on their behalf. I think of Mike Tyson. He would not become the world champion that he was if it wasn't for, uh, for Cuss, his, his coach. So behind every great, outstanding, outperforming athlete, there's always an amazing coach. I wouldn't be here where I am today if it weren't for these mentors and coaches in my life. Both, I, ha- I, have my, I actually have the privilege of having my jujitsu and fitness coach here every Sunday, all right? Um, I, I wouldn't have got my black belt if I tried to do it alone. Would I, Cyborg? I wouldn't have. It was a long journey of over 10 years, but you have to have good mentors and good coaches in every area of, 
of life. Now, we're going through the life of the Apostle Paul. This series, The Race, is about the life of the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul compared the Christian life to a race in many of his writings. And last week, we started with Paul's conversion, his his encounter with Jesus on this road to Damascus. He was going about his own business. He was persecuting Christians. And he had this powerful encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And we learned about Paul's starting line as the starting line for every Christian. It's got to come through an encounter with Jesus. Now, what we're going to read today is the next step of what happens after that conversion experience. He is actually taken into the city. He is blind, right, because he had this encounter with Jesus. Bright light blinded him. He is taken into the city of Damascus, modern-day Syria, and there God sends him a coach. God sends him a mentor, a man by the name of Ananias, that equips and trains and prepares the Apostle Paul for what's coming up next in his life and his journey so that he can become all that God had called him to be. So would you turn with me to Acts chapter 9? We started in the beginning of chapter 9. We're at the back end of chapter 9. And we're going to read verses 10 through 19 today, okay? So uh, bear with me this reading. The text is going to be on the screen. You can follow along. Just pay attention. Like when you're reading the Bible, it's all these words. Sometimes you just tune out and, and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tune back in once he starts speaking again. No, no, no. Read the text and try to understand the story. Uh, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I I have heard from many about this man, how much evil has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit and immediately Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. As we think about uh, this passage in light of this stage in the life of the Apostle Paul, there's four things. Today's a four-pointer sermon, okay? It's not a three-pointer sermon like you're used to. Today is a four-pointer sermon. Let's talk about uh, the double calling. There's a double calling that's been issued to us. All of us have been called to exercise this double calling. We'll, we'll talk about this double calling. Uh, then, then let's talk about the resistance that we have to this double calling. It's a calling that God has placed in our lives, but there's a resistance from us to exercise and to live out this double calling. 
But once we get past the resistance, let's ask the question then, how do I live out this calling in my life? How are you and I supposed to live out this double calling, past the resistance in our lives? And then lastly, I should have started with why, but I'm ending with why. Why? Why we are to live out this calling, okay? So first, let's talk about the double calling, this double calling that's been issued in our lives. And I want to use, obviously, here, uh, one of the main characters of the story, which is this man by the name of Ananias who becomes his first coach to the apostle Paul. And uh, we read, the first, the first thing that we read about Ananias here in chapter 9 is that Ananias was a disciple. Look, go back to verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Now, there's something interesting about this, and that is the fact that Paul recounts this story later on in chapter 22. So in chapter 9, this is Luke, the writer of Acts of the Apostle. He is the same one that writes the Gospel of Luke, and he is a companion of Paul, and he tells Paul's story of conversion and of his first coach here in chapter 9. Later on in chapter 22, after Paul is arrested and he is brought before the authorities in Jerusalem, he retells his story. Now, this is coming from the Apostle Paul, and this is what the Apostle Paul says about Ananias as he's telling his version of the story. There's more information here. This is what the Apostle Paul says, okay? Let's go to the text. Uh, not there? Okay, let me read it for you. This is probably my fault. I probably didn't put it there. I didn't request it. But this is, this is the Apostle Paul in chapter 22 now, okay? Just pay attention. And, and one Ananias, this is Paul talking about Ananias. And Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all of the Jews who lived there in Damascus. So he's talking here about this man in a very high way, okay? So in 9, let's put it together, in chapter 9, as Luke narrates Paul's experience with Ananias, he describes Ananias as just a disciple. Now in chapter 22, when the apostle Paul looks back to that experience, he says Ananias was a respected man in his community. He was a strong leader, not just a strong leader, but a strong spiritual leader. He knew the Bible. He knew the word of God. So he is both a mature man, but he's also a follower and disciple of Jesus. He is both a disciple and a disciple maker. He is both, in this illustration of the race, he is both a runner and a coach. And Ananias demonstrates in his life how our lives ought to be as well. If you have been redeemed by Jesus, if you've been called by Jesus to follow him, Jesus only called you to follow him so that you would make other followers of Jesus. We are disciples that are called to be disciple makers. That's the double calling of the Christian. We are called to both be runners and coaches as well. Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, after being raised from the dead, he met with his disciples. He actually spent 40 days with his disciples post the resurrection, and he gives the clear definition of the mission that the disciples, and therefore us, ought to have. This is Jesus talking to his disciples moments before he ascended into heaven, okay? And this comes from the message version. Jesus, undeterred, went right ahead and gave his charge. This is to you and I. God authorized and commanded me to commission you. 
Go out and train everyone. Underline, go out and train everyone. Everyone you meet, far and near, in this way of life. Marking them by baptism and the threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then instruct them in the practice of all I have commanded you. See, every Christian is a disciple that's being called to be a disciple maker. Every Christian is a runner, but also called to be someone else's coach. We have received this double calling from Jesus. And I want you to understand that this is so important for you to get because this race that we've been called to run is not an easy race. This race is a very hard race. And you cannot make it alone. See, there are certain gifts, certain abilities, certain experiences that people have that you don't have and you need that from them. And there are certain gifts, certain experiences, certain gifts that you have that others don't have that you need to impart to them. And one of the beautiful things, and, you know, as I've you know, gone on this journey of training jiu-jitsu is that I'm a black belt today, but I always learn with a white belt and a blue belt or a purple belt every day at the gym because we supplement each other. And that's how the church ought to work. That's how the Christian life ought to be lived out. I remember a couple of years ago hearing from the head of program of the Salvation Army up in New York City. He leads the recovery programs that they run in New York City for people that have issues with substance abuse. And he was talking about their program. And one of the things that he said was recovery programs have a success rate of 8%. Okay? So if somebody is substance dependent and they go through a program, regardless of the Salvation Army or any other, the average rate of success is 8%. Because it gets hard and people quit. They leave along the way. It's very, very hard. He was bragging that their program in New York had a success rate of 22%. Only 20% of the people basically would finish and would actually find a pathway to recovery. But this is what he said last. He said, here's a study that we've come up with. Those that have gone through our programs and have plugged into a local church, a community of faith, the success rate went from 22% to 86%. You see what I'm saying? That's the idea here. And when you think about these recovery programs, that's the idea. Like everybody is an addict, everybody is struggling, but you're coaching and you're helping and you're encouraging one another and that keeps you on the race. And that's the idea. That's the double calling that we're called to exercise. Regardless of where you find yourself in the journey, God is calling you to be coached and to coach. Now, secondly, here's a resistance to the calling, right? Because even though we know this, even though the great commission of Jesus that we learn about in Matthew 28 is very clear to us, it's it's a verse that's quoted over and over and over again to Christians. The reality, the fact of the matter is, is that most Christians don't live out that calling. <laughs> in fact, I would love to say that here at Crossbridge, all you guys are doing that, that we have a success rate of 86, 86%, but it's not true. Most of you are not living out that calling, that double calling. That's the truth of the matter. That This is what I find. Most of you have a hard time following anybody and being coached, and most of you are not leading anybody to Christ. True or false? True. Now, I'm not saying this to guilt you, Okay, because we're working together and it's not easy. It doesn't come as second nature. So we need to learn. We need to identify where that problem comes from. And it comes from from the same thing that we see here in Ananias. Because let's go back to the passage. Here's Ananias. He receives a vision from God. 
And God shows up to Ananias and gives him the mission, right? So let's go back to verse 10, okay? Uh, I want you to get this story really well here. So verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Now, there's, there's a way that this is constructed in the Greek because let me tell you this. The Bible is a translation from the Greek. The New Testament is a translation from the Greek, the Old Testament from Hebrew. And, and so there's certain things that's hard to translate, uh, but there, there's a progression here in the Greek that is building momentum and it's building suspense, okay? So I, I, I'm going to try to read it to you with the Greek in mind. So this is how it would work out. God shows up to Ananias in a vision. And says, Ananias. And he says, yes, sir. What do you need? I'm here. And then God comes to Ananias and, and he says, uh, rise. And he says, uh, rise and go to a street called Straight in the city of Damascus. He's like, oh, I know that street. I'm going to go there. Great. Here's the next ask. And I want you to go at the house of this man by the name of Judas. Oh, Judas. I know Judas. I know where, exactly where Judas lives on the straight street. I know exactly where he lives. And then he says, and I, wanna, I want you to go into his house, and I want you to look for a man of Tarsus. Okay, that's great. Fine. His name is Saul. No way. <laughs> Ananias knew that Saul had been sent from Jerusalem to Syria, this is probably from here to Jacksonville, okay, um, that he had been sent from Jerusalem to Damascus in Syria with papers authorizing him to, to arrest Christians, to seize their possessions, to torture them, and to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. And in some cases, if they resisted, he could use violence against them. So Ananias knew that the fame had been going around. And said, this guy is a nasty persecutor of us Christians. He is coming to our town. And now God says, hey, I want you to go to this house where you know where it is, and I want you to go meet this man by the name of Saul. He says, God, this guy is a violent man. You're sending me, you're feeding me to the wolves. What are you doing here? What, what, what is Ananias doing? He's reasoning with God. He's saying to God, God, like, I fear for my safety, and rightfully so, most of us would have said the same thing if God were to ask us to do such an exercise or fulfill such a mission. We would have said to God, God, yeah, I'm going to put my life at risk, and you want me to put my family at risk and the church at risk? You know, he's not just going to go after me. He's going to probably try to interrogate me, go after others. He's expressing his true concerns and his fear. And I think about ourselves because... When God gives us this mission or when, when God has, you know, clarified to us this double calling in our lives, there is this difficulty just to, inside of us to exercise this calling. Now, we don't have the same danger knocking at our door like Ananias did, and yet we don't leave our place of comfort. Why? Because of a few, few reasons. Number one, we have believed the lie Many of us have believed the lie that you can run the Christian race alone, that you can live the Christian life alone, that spirituality, like everything in this life nowadays for modern people, is all about your own personal choice, all about the individual, and, and, and therefore you don't need the church, you don't need leaders, you don't need coaches, you can do it on your own. It's a lie. You cannot. Let me tell you this. 
Here's a second reason why. It's because we Westerners, we Westerners, we value too much our comfort and our security. You know, if, if God were to give you this mission today, and let's say the person is not a persecutor trying to kill you, like Saul was trying to kill the Christians back in those days, if God were to say that to you, hey, I, I want you to go down to Little Havana, okay, in Calle Ocho, there is this little restaurant there, and you're going to go in there, and there's this person sitting on this table, and I want you to have a conversation with that person in the middle of your day. What would you say to God? God, I'm busy today, God. What are you talking about? I have work. I have these business meetings. And if God were to even say to you, hey, and I want you to buy that person lunch, I'm broke. What are you talking about? Okay? We're always trying to protect our safety and our comfort. That's what keeps most of us from living out this calling in your life. It's because if you and I are really, really honest, we're just thinking about ourselves. We are selfish. We are about our comfort. We are about our safety. And this is what's happening here with Ananias. And the only way, listen, the only way that you can live out the Christian life is in the context of risk. We are afraid of risks. We are afraid of following God because it's hard and there's so many risks that we have to assume and undertake. But listen, unless you take risks, you will not find your purpose. You will not finish the race. It's only in the risk-taking activity day after day in obedience to Jesus to fulfill this calling that you find your purpose and your joy. While you're trying to protect yourself because you'll fear that you will never find joy and happiness if you give up your safety and your comfort, you will never find comfort and joy. But when you give it up to God and you assume the risk and you obediently follow him, you find contentment, fulfillment, purpose, and joy. And I know this is crazy. What, what are you talking about? But that's how it works. I'm telling you. And that's what we read over and over and over in the Bible. So that is our obstacle. Okay. Now, okay, I understand the obstacle. So how do, we, how do I now get past this obstacle and... Start living out this double calling in my life. And I think that what uh, we see here in Ananias, like the things that he does, the steps that he takes as he ministers to the apostle Paul, sets up a very good framework for us. It's going to be very practical now, okay? If you're saying, okay, I will now take on the risks. So how do I do it? Here's the four steps that we see here as he comes in to minister to Paul. The first, the first thing is there's got to be proximity to God. It will not start unless you are close to God. It starts with proximity to God. I find it's very beautiful here in this passage that Ananias receives this vision from God. How does he receive this vision from God? He is praying. He has carved out time in his day and in his week to connect with God. And it's as he is connecting with God that God gives him this vision. Now, not every time that you pray and you try to connect with God, you're going to get a vision from God. But you're not going to get a vision from God unless you have a life of prayer. You hear what I'm saying? You hear what I'm saying? You need proximity to God. And it's when you have proximity to God that you get vision from God. And the reason why you don't know what to do with this calling is because you say, you say to me, most people say this to me, hey, uh, I don't know who I should talk to. I don't know who I should. You know why? Because you're not asking God. 
You're not spending time with God. Because if you were to be in tune with him, your frequency, be attuned to his frequency, God will review all sorts of people around you. Both to coach you, to mentor you, and for you to mentor and to coach. It's when you are close to God that he gives you vision. Hey, have you thought about this person? Have you seen this other person? I want you to start investing in that person's life. I want you to open up yourself to this person's wisdom. It starts with proximity to God. Without proximity to God, you cannot find out the will of God. You will not see that which God is putting in front of you. There will be no vision for you to follow, for you to be coached and to coach as well. Secondly, here's the second step. Ready? So it starts with proximity with God. Then you speak the word of God. Okay? So you get vision from God, then you speak. You don't speak anything that God has not given you. You speak that which he has given you. The only reason why Ananias is there speaking to Paul is because God gave him that vision. You receive from God and you speak the word of God. And when you speak the word of God to people, into people's lives, the people that God has set before you, Okay, this is what you do. You don't speak to the person that's in front of you. Okay, you don't speak to the person that is, but you speak to the person that will be. You speak to the person that will be. And and, and in chapter 22, when Paul is sharing about that experience, this this is what he said about Ananias and the way Ananias spoke to him. Look, in verse, in verse uh, 15, Ananias comes to him and says, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard, and now why do you wait? Now, now I, I, this is a guy who was a persecutor. I mean, like, he had done nothing for Jesus yet except destroy the church. That's the only thing he has done his whole life up to this point. And the first few words that he hears from this man that comes into his house, says, you will be. He doesn't say you can be, you may be. It depends on what you choose. You have the potential to be. No, he says you will be. Many times when we're speaking to people, we're not speaking words of blessings over their lives. We are called to speak words of blessings. The word of God has power to shape and to mold people's lives. So when God puts somebody in front of me, I don't speak to the man or the woman I see. I speak to the man or the woman that will be. And that's what good coaches do. They speak to the person that will be. I I remember Mike Tyson sharing about his experience with with his coach, Cus D'Amato. You know, obviously behind Tyson was this great coach. He said that one day he was at the gym. He's a kid's from the project, and he's hitting the mitts, and he's in the ring, you know, sparring. And this man walks in, never seen him before. He's 13 years old, approaches him with authority and says, you will be a great world champion. He's like, what? It's a kid from the projects. And, and, and that was a practice of Customato. In fact, later on, this is what Tyson says about him. He says, Cus was one of the most unique men ever to walk the planet. He touched the lives of so many people and helped them become a better version of themselves. He took the weak and made them strong. because He made them believe that they would win, that they would be world champions. The best coaches make you believe. Now think about this. Some of these guys don't have any data to back this up, okay? That's a good practice to say to people, hey, you will be successful. God will 
give you opportunities. But many times we don't have, these people don't have the backing. But we have the backing. Why? Because the Bible says that if you understood that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you, oh man, you can overcome anything. So I can speak in these ways to people because I believe that the power of the Spirit of God can't be at work in these people's lives. And so I don't speak to the person that is, I speak to the person that will be. And that's what Terry and Al and many others in my life did for me. You know, I remember uh, we were like a year and a half into the replanting of this church, and it was sort of going well, and, and he was taking me around to conferences, and he said, I want to introduce you, Felipe, I says, I'm like this 33-year-old or whatever. Says, I, I want to introduce you, Felipe, he's, you know, the most successful, successful church replanter right now in America. And I was like, Bob's like, you got to stop saying this. Look, this has only been a year and a half. And he says, I can totally say this because of two reasons. Number one, I don't know anyone other than you. I was like, that's great. That's great. It's the same thing if I told my wife she's my favorite wife. All right? It's only one. So that's the first thing he told me. But then he said, and you will. I believe in you. God is at work in you. You will. Step into that role. Take on that mantle. And this is what God did. And so you speak to people that way. Now, you may be here today and you're saying, now, I don't know who God has put in front of me. I, I don't know, uh, you know, who am I to open myself to for wisdom. Listen, that's okay. That's why we have some programs, some training programs here at Crossbridge to allow you to step into that environment first. See, that, the, the, the to be told program that's about to start, all of you should be doing that. All of you. Some of you don't even know how to tell your story to people. You don't know how to identify God's at workings, in workings in your life story. You don't know your brokenness. You don't know your trauma. You don't know how God is healing, what he wants to purpose you for. You don't. And you need these tools so that you can have these conversations with people. So that you can both be a runner and a coach. I hope that everybody after this, Shim, signs up and we have a, the same outcome as, as the emotionally healthy relationship. Okay. Sign up, invest. We have these spaces. Don't be like, oh, I just can't, don't know. We have tools here. Don't complain. Oh, I'm not being discipled. Yeah, we have discipleship tools here. You're just not using these tools. So we have this. There's a way. Okay, so number one, you proximity to God. Then you speak the word of God. Now here's the second cycle. Now proximity to people. That's the third thing that happens, okay? Ananias walks into Judas' house where Saul is, and what does he do? What is the first thing that he does? Two things. First, he calls him Brother Saul. Now, this to me is amazing because here's the persecutor of the church. Here's somebody that used to hurt Christians. And most commentators of the Bible said that the first word that Paul ever heard from another Christian was brother. Brother. And then the second thing that Ananias does is what? Lays his hands on Paul, puts his hands on his shoulders. Now, Paul was used to putting his hands on Christians to hurt them. Here is a believer, a follower of Jesus, putting his hands on his shoulders to heal him, to love on him, to embrace him. You cannot live out and exercise this mission far from others. You cannot do this just through social media, okay? You have to be close to people. You have to get into people's lives. There's got to be a sentiment of family. You've got to open your life to them. If you're on the receiving end, you've got to open up and say, come in, look in. You've got to do that. You can't do it from a distance. 
There's got to be proximity to people. And then lastly, when there's proximity to people. So proximity to God, speaking the word of God. Then proximity to people. Then doing the work of God. Don't try to do the work of God without close, being close to people, be, without being close to God. That's a disaster. A lot of you are trying to do the work of God without being close to God with people. They just hurt people. Okay? So after proximity to God, after speaking the word of God, after proximity to people, then you do the work of God and you become an usher of God's healing and God's blessing into people's lives. You become a channel of God's healing and God's uh, work into someone else's life. Let me tell you something here today, okay, that I know you're, you're probably thinking about. Look, the main way by which God works in people's lives it's not like Star Wars, these powers being released out of heaven or whatever. No. You know what the main way that God works in people's lives? Miraculously healing us in every single way from the physical to the spiritual. is through people. God uses people as his instrument of healing in the lives of others. He uses doctors. He uses counselors. He uses friends. He uses pastors. He uses coaches. He uses people to heal other people. And that's what's so beautiful about our calling and why we ought to take on this mantle of Ananias is because we are the healing community of Jesus. Now, we know that we're all injured here. We're all running this race, but we all have injuries. You have patella injuries. You have hip injuries. You have back injuries. When you get to my age, you have all of those injuries and much more. You got to go to somebody like Lawrence back there, you know, chiropractor. <laughs> the plug it for you, bro. But in the Christian life, we all have injuries as well. And, and, and sometimes our, inju our injuries become obstacles to minister to others because we say, I can't because I'm, I'm broken as well. I'm wounded. But let me tell you something. The way in which God calls us to minister is not out of our strengths, but always out of our weaknesses. It's our failures that serve as God's ultimate witness of his power in our lives. So don't hide your story from others. Don't hide your wounds from others. It's our wounds that heal because it was the wounds of Jesus that healed us. You see what I'm saying? Henry Nouwen uh, was, you know, a Christian writer. He wrote this amazing book called The Wounded Healer. This is what he says. Look, pay attention to this quote. It's an amazing quote. When we become aware that we do not have to escape our pains, but that we can mobilize them, mobilize your pain, mobile, I love this language, mobilize them into a common search for life, those very pains are transformed from the expressions of despair into signs of hope. So don't hide your pain. Use your pain. It's your injuries that become wisdom for someone else's injury in this race. Proximity to God, speak the word of God. Proximity to people, do the work of God. Why? Why are we to do this? Okay, I get it. We're called to do this just out of obedience. Yes, it's out of obedience, but there's more to that. Because we've been on the receiving end. This is the mission of Jesus Christ. This is the mission of Jesus. What Ananias is doing here, the mantle that he takes on is the mantle of Jesus. The reason why we are to take this mantle is because it's the mantle of Jesus. This is the mission of Jesus. See, Jesus came down to run the race for us. He didn't say, hey, good luck. You run by yourself. We were trying, but we were like falling like flies. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down. And he takes on the form of a runner. He takes on a form of a human. He takes upon himself our condition, our flesh. 
And he comes and he runs for us. He runs with us. He doesn't run at a distance. He runs close to us. And we're able to see him sweat. Like when you're running with somebody, you're able to see him sweat. You're able to hear his, his uh, heartbeat and his breath. It was close, that close. Because he came to run with us. But not only did he come to run with us, he came to run for us because he knew we wouldn't win. We knew we wouldn't make it. We, he knew we would not arrive at the finish line. So he says, tell you this, I'm going to run for you. I remember uh, in the Miami Marathon a few years ago, uh, this father, I don't know if you saw this. You probably heard this story. You read this story. Uh, there's this father, uh, and he had his son with MS. And his son always wanted to be an athlete but never could because of his condition. So his father took on his number son, his number, and he put it on his jersey. And he dragged his son behind and he finished the race with his son. This is what Jesus has done for us. He has taken like, let's say this is a marathon. You have all those numbers. He says, Shem, give me your number. You're not going to make it past the first mile. You're not going to make it past the second mile. He takes all of our tags and he puts it on himself and he finished the race for us. That's what the gospel says. What was required of us, he did it on our behalf. So that what? So that even though in life we face failures, he can still look at us through that which he has done and says, you are more than conquerors. You are champions because I have finished for you. And not only that, he has run ahead of us. So we know what the end is going to be. He says, I ran and I came back. I tell you, I know exactly the steps, and I'm going to take you all the way to the finish line. But not only that, through his spirit, he says, I'm going up, but I'm leaving one that's going to run with you inside of you. We have the power of the spirit of God inside of us. And so why do we fulfill this calling? Because it's the mission of Jesus that has been extended to us. He was both a runner and a coach Jesus was more than that. Like Ananias, he did not just lay his healing hands over us. He laid down his life for us so that you and I can finish strong this race. We can stay at it. And so here's, here's what I want to do. We're going to go into the Lord's table. I want to invite the band back.